8.38 the time here on Talk Radio 790-KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Good Wednesday morning to you all. Rob Marinko, good morning to you. Good morning, Royal. And Randy Wang, how are things uh, How are things there in the control booth? Are it's you... been a fairly depressing 20 hours. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, you you always are reporting on depressing sports stories, it's, it seems like. But it's not about the Rams, it's about Carrie Fisher for once. Yes, that's true. We found out the second we got off the air yesterday that she had died. Yeah, you know, when we heard about the heart attack on the airplane, it, it sounded serious, but not that serious. But obviously, well, they said massive heart attack. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But unresponsive. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, not good. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I just expected more clues uh, that that things were were really taking terrible turns. But obviously, the the news was awful. But uh, my gosh, I mean the. The, the focus on, on her career and the amazing story, I mean, the idea of Hollywood royalty, for her to have been born into this family. I mean, Eddie Fisher was like the biggest pop star you could, you know, George Michael and Prince and, and everybody else rolled together. I mean, he, Justin Timberlake and Justin Bieber, he was huge in the 50s and 60s. I was with you until the Bieber thing. Yeah, there you go. And, and then Debbie Reynolds, of course, was a major, major star. Just a just a gorgeous woman, hugely talented. And that and, whole family had its own scandal because Fisher left her for Elizabeth Taylor. That's the thing. When Carrie Fisher was two years old, Elizabeth Taylor was dumped on worldwide because she was seen as this black widow who swoops in and steals Eddie Fisher away from Debbie Reynolds. And, of course, he was just a way station. What was he, like number five of seven husbands for, for Elizabeth Taylor? I mean, she was just her own soap opera right there. And so born into this this weird vortex of, of fame and, and, and you know, bizarre uh, national scope soap opera type stuff. There's Carrie Fisher, and then, boom, at a young age, I guess she was about 19 when uh, Star Wars hit. Uh, and, of course, she had no idea that this was going to become, you know, the iconic, you know, nine-part story that, that would be the overwhelming uh, show business phenomenon basically of the century. But, you know, it turned out to be that. And then all her well-documented troubles with the bipolar disorder and the alcoholism and and you know, married to Paul Simon, you know, another gigantic, you know, you don't get any bigger name than that. Uh, and then, I, you know, as I understand it, I mean, a hugely respected writer, script doctor, just, just an amazing oh, wit. And uh, very funny. Speaking of wit, Royal, I heard an interview with her, with Stephen Colbert, and she was really funny. Yeah, oh, Spontaneously absolutely. funny and witty. Yeah, amazingly talented, but you know it's just sad because all all of these demons, and you you just wonder: is it inevitable if you're born into that kind of situation? I mean, a lot of people, you know, mom and dad split when they're two, and they don't end up with the litany of problems that she had. Uh, and you just wonder if there's something about that Hollywood supercharged celebrity existence that is sort of assures. That yes, you're going to have the amazing highs, but you're also definitely going to have uh, the lows as well. But boy, everybody has just been totally focused on her life, and of course, we're going to have some uh, terrific guests uh, later uh, uh, today. Rebecca Keegan from Vanity Fair is going to weigh in on, on Carrie Fisher. Uh, but boy, I mean, when you add up the names, I know it just seems you know people who believe in this uh, celebrities dying in three. Obviously, it's a lot of hoo ha. But when you add up the names this year. 
of of people who uh, have uh, have died. I mean, Muhammad Ali, Arnold Palmer, uh, Castro, Nancy Reagan, Gene Wilder, Gary Shandling, Gary Marshall. The, you know, the titans of so many fields. Castro, though, uh, was a terrible act. It wasn't funny at all. Absolutely not. I mean, talk about uh, unfunny. And that's really sad. I'm going to get into that, actually, uh, in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, uh, so, so stick around. Uh, 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 just a striking a headline I saw in the paper the other day. Is communism cool? That was the question. And the problem oh, is, yeah, the problem is millennials have absolutely no idea what communism is all no about. Those of us who are a little older than that know, well, yeah, you know, you, you can talk about Chairman Mao and wear his little hat, but he did kill 100 million people. And you they know, like he, to forget that part. Exactly right. Same thing. With, same thing with Stalin. He may not have been up a hundred, maybe 80, 90 million. Uh, there was a famous line attributed to Mao Zedong when in the fifties there there were some close calls that folks didn't really hear about in terms of nuclear war. Eisenhower was able to kind of do his thing and tamp it down. So on one of those occasions when we we came pretty close to having nuclear exchange with China. One of Mao's uh, advisors came in to him and said, oh, Mr. Chairman, uh, you know, this is going to happen and that, and these are your options. And he said, Mr. Chairman, in a nuclear exchange with America, we could lose 100 million Chinese. And you know what Mao said in response? So we'll make another 100 million Chinese. That was his attitude. I mean, that has to be the attitude of a guy who's basically running a prison camp. So that's... Uh, he didn't say two hours later we'll have another 100 million Chinese. I have every single time with that stupid joke, yeah. Marinko. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that only happens in North Korea because, nice. you know, only, only a dear leader could accomplish that. <laughs> Excuse me, pot calling kettle black over there in the control room. Holy smoke. Did you say something about pot? 5.45 the time. We're going to do that a little later today. A new marijuana laws in the news. 5.45 the time. Talk Radio 790-KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, we'll address the question, is communism cool? Right now, we're going to address the question, uh, how's Bill Thomas doing and how the freeway's doing? 6.05 the time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. Hope you're having a wonderful week. This is this has got to be everybody's favorite week of the year, Rob Marinko. Sure. I mean, it's you know we're working here, but, yeah. you know, it's pretty low-key. It's a lot of folks that maybe are in your life and you, you'd just rather they not be in your life. They're out and about. They're gone. Now, I got to tell you, uh, this is intriguing, Rob Marinko. Yeah. You turned Randy Wang, yes. sports reporter, uh -huh. into Wendy Rang. Where did that come from? Is there some weird deep-seated Freudian thing? Wendy Rang, does that even make sense, really? It doesn't, but people misspelling my name is how I got to be Randy Wang in the first place. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, in fairness, Rob Marinko, could we turn you into Mob Romenko? No, Rob. Wow. Mob Rarinko, I think. Whatever you like, oil rokes. Well, the thing is, it, it's got this element of danger to it. Mob Rarinko. It sounds like Carlos Danger. Yeah. You, he does you look and, like a goon. You, you and Anthony Weiner could well, hang listen, out with screen names. Here's what I know about the Marinko background and Marinkovic. Uh, mm -hmm. It goes, it's Serbian. And my family, uh, it turns out, are a bunch of war criminals, I think. Really? Yeah. So that has an element of danger to it. Mob might be a step up. Yeah. 
It's like that line from uh, the Book of Mormon, a warlord that shoots people in the face. What's so scary about that? So uh, talk about scary. You you yes. mentioned a story. I want to get to the marijuana economy here because yeah. we, you know, we're in a new, brave new world here in California. It's, it's, uh, and marijuana is going to be coming out of our ears. So, But before we get to that, serious story back east about this maniac that shot these folks up in the black church. Where in the world do we come up with the idea that a guy on trial for his life should be able to defend himself? Is that idiotic or what? Well, now, it's it's legal. Yeah, that's the problem. The court system says, well, people should be able to do what they want. We have to give them freedom, you know, if they want to defend themselves. Give me a break. They are going to execute him. They're going to kill him if he's found guilty, as it sounds like they should, because it was totally premeditated. Now, who knows? Maybe there's some psychiatric testimony that yeah. says, you know, he was on LSD and he, he thought it was a brontosaurus and so on. That you, you could hear that. But the point is, he is being allowed to defend himself in a capital case. And to me, it sounds like he's crazy like a fox because they're, they're, I think the only way he's going to escape the death chamber is for the legal system, whether it's a jury or a judge, to say, oh, of course he deserves to die, but we can't bring ourselves to kill him when he defended himself. Essentially, he was defenseless. I mean... But it, that was his choice. He yeah, could have had a lawyer. Yeah, but I don't think he should be allowed to have exercise that choice when the stakes are that serious. Because, again, I think it's his get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't think they're going to... Do you really think they're going to execute a guy after he basically rolled over and was defenseless? And, you know, he's going through the motions and, you know, pretending to be Look at the crime. Look at what he did. Yeah. Look at the families that he destroyed. Oh, Sitting absolutely. In a church. He deserves to die. Absolutely. And, and apparently the evidence came out. He admitted himself. He just sat there for like an hour thinking, oh, should I do it? Should I not? At one point, he almost got up and walked away and he said, oh, no. And he thought, well, I could go. I could go to some part of town where there are a bunch of drug dealers and I could blow. No, but I won't do that. You can so, see the thinking. He, he figures that the death penalty is almost a foregone conclusion. So what have I got to lose? Yeah, right? I suppose. It's just that we're so reluctant to pull the trigger in this society we were talking about it yesterday capital punishment every single year just slips a little in public esteem i i just i'm i'm here to predict they're not going to execute this guy when he defends himself i mean if you want an appendectomy the, the hospital's not going to let you take your appendix out yourself okay oh no i'm good at this you know i can uh, i don't have a medical license but i know just uh, where to, to stitch up and so on it's not going to happen so why do we respect freedom so much we let people essentially commit suicide by representing themselves in a capital case yeah, at least the lawyer doesn't have to get involved with this a-hole the lawyer gets to take a little time off that, what's the old saying true. if you hire yourself for a lawyer you have a fool for a client is that the deal <laughs> yeah and i i think that's true here except if my prediction is true then the, he may end up uh, getting life without possibility of parole so uh marijuana it's it's the marijuana nation here in california we have uh, voted for it and it's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect uh, personal conduct. Uh, so people are already talking about a significant uh, a change to California's economy in terms of distribution and, and, and growth. But the problem is that we've got this schizophrenic system. The federal government has been kind of looming over everybody. And they say, uh, you know, it's still illegal. Don't forget about us. And whereas the Obama administration has made it clear, they're not exactly going to be uh, pushing hard on 
on this. We got a we got a new sheriff in town, and for example, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. You know, he's he's gonna be Attorney General, assuming that he's approved by the Senate. He is known as one of marijuana's most notorious foes. He has criticized the Obama administration's decision to not enforce federal marijuana laws in the so-called green states. You know, and everybody heard the joke he he told supposedly. He said he thought the Ku Klux Klan was okay until he found out they smoked weed. Well, people conclude that he's not exactly a friend of cannabis, and he's not a friend of licensed and regulated yeah. marijuana. He's not a friend of comedy either. No, no, he isn't. He's never going to make it uh, down at the ice house. You he, know, Caltrans he, is way ahead of this marijuana thing. For years, they've had the signs lighting up in the freeway, buzz driving is drunk driving. That's true. They've been ahead now of their time. it makes more sense. Yeah. That, that's, uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think that the proposition that was passed by the voters said anything about, you know, what level of impairment by marijuana w- would constitute a DUI. Where oh, it's really hard to tell that. It's really hard sure. to gauge it. Everyone has a different tolerance. Everyone has a different level for high. It's not like alcohol where you can just test how much is in your blood. It's different for everybody. The so they- test is coming. They're oh, working on it now. I'm sure yeah. it is. And yeah. then every one of my stoner friends will say, but I drive better when I'm high. <laughs> well, they probably do drive better when they're high than they would drive when they're drunk. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people thought it was a pretty good idea to uh, to go ahead and take the risk because uh, drunk driving is inherently more dangerous than uh, uh, than driving w- when you're stoned. But in any event, we're, we're getting ready for this sort of uneasy truce between California and, and federal law. Uh, there are some regulations at the federal level that the Obama administration has been uh, living under that, that help ease the process. There's something called the Cole Memorandum. It guides the Department of Justice not to challenge state-compliant marijuana businesses. So the idea is if you're Following the state laws, the recreational marijuana laws, to the letter, the feds are going to be hands-off. Then there's something called the Rohrbacher Farr Amendment that does not let the Justice Department uh, use federal money to prosecute legal state marijuana operations. But the problem is these are just regulations that have to be renewed every single year, and there's no guarantee that the, uh, that the new... Uh, that the new guy, Jeff Sessions, is really going to have, have the same attitude. I know he's anti-weed. I know he's pro. He's very into federalism. He'll probably be very busy with immigration as opposed to weed. But his boss, Donald Trump, is pro-medical marijuana. He said it himself on the campaign trail. And he has said about Colorado and other states that have a recreational, I want to see how that works out. So yeah. I think we're going to be okay. And if not, I'll go back to buying from my drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> so L.A. has already a billion dollars in unregulated sales. Uh, probably this year, Los Angeles uh, next year, will uh, pass an ordinance that will facilitate the licensing of uh, marijuana businesses. So uh, it's coming. It's here. Uh, in California, you, you got to be 21. The, the proposition didn't apply to people under 21. Uh, it allows you to have no more than one ounce uh, of marijuana, and, and it's totally legal. Uh, you can have six plants uh, per residence. Uh, people are asking, well, am I going to still need a, a doctor's note now that Prop 64 has passed? Well, it's kind of yes and no. You're going to be legal to possess under an ounce without a doctor's recommendation. If you have the recommendation, you can possess way more than that. Now, mind you, for people that aren't in the weed world like me, an ounce is a lot of weed. That's like a month's supply. Okay. 
Well, that's interesting. But some people, like some of my friends, need more than that on them at all times. So, And, and people are not going to be able to buy marijuana in stores without a doctor's recommendation, apparently, until 2018. Well, here's what's interesting. There's a ton of dispensaries that are just saying, screw it, come in and buy it, because no one's really enforcing that right now. It, you know, there's too, there's too many things for the police to do to worry about you know, busting a pot shop that's selling it two years too early. It's legal. It's already here. The door's wide open. Right. So people are asking about, well, how can I get a license to uh, to grow or sell marijuana? And apparently the licenses won't be issued until th- until 2018 when a bureau is going to get the, get set up. Uh, people are asking about whether you can take uh, marijuana on a plane now. And apparently TSA officials are saying that flying within California, you hop on uh, Southwest, you want to he- head up to uh, uh, Oaksterdam. Um, it, it says that you're, they're not going to bother you if you're flying with an under an ounce of marijuana. So you're not going to worry about the the dogs coming up to you in the airport. There's another line of regulation that nobody's talking about, and that's from the cartels. If you start producing too much marijuana, not as an individual, but growing it for these uh, communities or these stores, uh, you may have something else to contend with because that's still a huge business from south of the border. Yeah, that's true. But the more we legalize and the more it's grown here, the more we put them out of business. What are they going to do to us? <laughs> burn down our pot fields. And, and they're going to come up to California and burn down our pot fields. Possible. Well, it's a brave new world, and uh, folks are going to have to read their Prop 64 and uh, kind of get used to the new rules. When they uh, ring. Yeah. <laughs> And wonder if Jeff Sessions is going to be uh, knocking on your door. Hi, I'm the Attorney General. I'd like to check out your bedroom. 616 The Time, Talk Radio 790KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. We're going to shift gears right now because, uh, gosh, you know, the holidays, uh, it, it's kind of a cliche, but apparently it's true. Uh, Folks, uh, folks have some problems with uh, maybe Lord. Uh, the, the expectations are so high, and then the actual events uh, aren't as satisfying. So let's uh, welcome Dr. Jeff Gardere, a psychologist. See if he can help us uh, sort this problem out. Jeff, good, good morning. Welcome to KBC. Thank you, and good morning to you. So it is kind of a cliche. Uh, people are sad because everybody else is having such a good time around the holidays. But it sounds like it's one of those uh, cliches that uh, has some truth to it, right? Well, it does. Uh, people certainly do have the holiday blues. And certainly with the political climate that we've seen, uh, certainly in the past year, I think a lot of people are very disconcerted as to what their future uh, may hold. But I think more than anything else, when you look at, just as you talked about, the expectations that, uh, that one has uh, for themselves more than anything else uh, as to being present for the holidays and, no pun intended, making sure that they can buy presents for the holidays for loved ones, even though their financial situation may be dire, that, that is a real stress and can lead to more holiday blues. We're talking to uh, Dr. Jeff Gardere, psychologist. I have to say, uh, Jeff, are you a fan of Dick Morris, the political uh, the political pundit and so on? Well, it's very interesting you should ask that. I, I've met uh, Dick Morris many, many times uh, over at the Fox News Network. And uh, even though I don't agree with his politics, uh, we have gotten along just uh, fabulously. Well, here's why I'm asking. I think you sound a little like Dick just Morris. Just like him. Now, now is this an impression you've been working on? 
It's very interesting. I, I woke up with a little bit of laryngitis this morning, <laughs> so I, I'm I'm on the deeper voice this morning. I actually like it, but I, I, I'm not uh, interested in the pain that goes with it. Okay. I can tell he's not Dick Morris because so far he's been accurate about everything. Yeah, yeah. Sensible, nice guy, smart. No, we're kidding. We all like Dick Morris. Yeah, no, no, no predictions here. <laughs> so in terms of um, how folks feel around the holidays, let, let me ask you this. Is, is there sort of a, a physiological component? You know, what? When you go to Vegas, usually, you know, you're staying up a little too late and you're drinking a little too much and you end up feeling like crap, And but you're having fun. I wonder if people really get out of their, their normal routine in the holidays. They do not eat and sleep and behave the way they normally do. I wonder if that, more than maybe a mental component, might be a reason why people uh, are feeling down or feel like they have the blues or seasonal affective disorder or whatever you call it. Well, I could tell you a lot of people that I've worked with, uh, they feel guilty about all of the overeating and overdrinking. Uh, they're not working out as much, and that throws them out of their routine, and they start feeling that guilt, which uh, results in more um, affective uh, emotions. But I will tell you, uh, seasonal affective disorder is real. Uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual says uh, that it is uh, something that is part of depression, and that is based on not getting enough sunlight, spending too much time indoors, and, of course, their sleep patterns being completely thrown off. Now, do people talk about special lights? Uh, you know, they turn them on in their home for a certain number of hours. Do you think there's anything to that, or is that just a lot of hoo-ha? Well, you have to be careful with the lights that you, you do use. Uh, and when I talk to my medical students, uh, we talk about something called a light box, which in some ways uh, simulates uh, the energy of the sun. I just tell them, whatever you do, don't tell your patients to look right at the darn thing. Uh, put it to the side of the person's body, the side of their face, and they can absorb uh, those light rays. And studies have shown that it does help. But the best thing one can do is to get outdoors and try to get sun wherever they can. And we do have some peaks of sun uh, in the Northeast every once in a while. Well, and I was going to talk about a peak of sun. It's funny you mentioned that because I would think we'd have a, a lot of laboratories to be able to study this. I've got friends up in Seattle, and they say they literally take their lawn chairs out into the backyard about 15 minutes before sundown just so they can sit there and look at the sun for, as it goes down because it's the only time they've been able to see the sun all day because of the cloud cover. I would think to the extent that's a real thing and not just an exaggeration, you could conclude based on studies that, well, the folks up in, in the Seattle areas, the cloud cover type areas, they have this seasonal affective disorder because they just don't get enough sun. That's right. And studies have shown that places uh, that have a lot of uh, cloudy, rainy, behavior, uh, rainy types of environments, including London, uh, that we tend to see more of this seasonal affective. And there's something to be said about being in an office all day and not having any windows, uh, which actually throws off your circadian rhythms and you're not getting that sunlight. And we see those people tend to have more emotional problems and a lack of productivity. We're talking with Dr. Jeff Gardier about uh, holiday blues, post-holiday blues. So what's the deal in terms of how to, how to approach this? People sort of demean talk therapy and they say, you know what, 
uh, we, we've been looking into it for decades, and it seems like it doesn't really help. You know, it's just very expensive, and you sit there, and you, and you talk, and you talk, nothing happens. On the other hand, there are doctors who just give you pills all the time, and uh, a lot of people don't, don't like that route. I mean, what's the consensus now for really the best approach if people really do have something that's serious enough that they would get into a professional's office? Yeah, I think with any mental illness, uh, certainly you should look at talk therapy or beha- uh, behavior modification being the first line of defense. Uh, and sometimes then you can have uh, medication as being part of the treatment. But I really do believe you should never be just on psychotropic medications and not getting therapy. Um, so we usually see a combination of both. But again, if talk therapy is what really does work for you and you can avoid the medications and the side effects, which can be pretty severe, then you're moving in the, uh, the right direction. Psychotherapy does work. Having someone who can listen to you and respond in telling you the things that you really need to hear versus what you want to hear, uh, which is what you get from friends, uh, doesn't really work. Therapy is something that is proven clinically to help people. Let's circle back to where we started about the, you know, the holiday situation. Is it really a thing where people are going from holiday party to holiday party and they notice, oh, uh, Wilbur and Cindy are much happier than I am. I'm really bummed out now. I mean, it, that's what we've been hearing, but is that really a psychological phenomenon? Well, I think it certainly adds to uh, the clinical picture one may have when they see that other people or they perceive them um, as having more happiness than they do, uh, almost like a clinical keeping up with the Joneses. But as we know, the grass is not always greener uh, on the other side, uh, not related to the story you did just before this one. Uh, And therefore, uh, I think we need to take a look at our lives uh, in a more objective manner and stop comparing ourselves to everyone because we'll never be able to keep up. It's really what can you do to improve your happiness, taking small steps each and every day and being grateful to, for the things that really do work for you versus looking at everything that is negative in one's life, which is part of a depression, perceiving everything in a negative manner. All right. Well, Dr. Jeff Gardier, I want to wish you a happy new year. Thank you, fellas, and it's a pleasure to be on with you. All right, thanks a lot. Take care. 624 The Time, Talk Radio, 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Hey, you've heard of road rage. When we come back, shuffleboard rage. But right now, Bill Thomas is going to tell us how things are looking on the roads. 629 The Time, Talk Radio, 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this hump day and everybody's favorite day, week of the year. So Rob Marinko, uh, road rage, big deal, uh, especially in Los Angeles. We're all uh, more familiar with it than we'd like to be. But there's another kind of rage out there. What's that? It's called shuffleboard rage. Ah. Yeah, uh, the deal is um, the, this gentleman, uh, uh, Herbert Hayden, uh, he's at a senior citizens center and they're playing shuffleboard. And he has entered a no-contest plea to misdemeanor battery. He's going to pay $1,000 in fines. This is uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. It's at a mobile home park. Got into a physical confrontation with a fellow retiree. Apparently, Hayden punched the victim and struck him with a shuffleboard cue. Oh, no. Now, I didn't know that you called the shuffleboard stick a cue. Were huh? you aware of that? No, no. I know you're a pool player. Nah, nah, I mean, but... neither one of us is in uh, Tim Weinbrenner's league. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, I think, is practically professional uh, on the pool table. But a cue? I mean, that's I where you have a pool. A pool cue. It was a stick. Yeah. A, pool, a... a two-piece cue, you know, with 
ivory, not from an elephant, of course. That's fancy, but yeah, shuffleboard is just to say, I don't think we should call it a cue. Anyway, they had a verbal argument. It escalated into a physical altercation. Hayden's a pretty big guy, six feet, 200 pounds. He's slug sut Sutton. Hit him with a shuffleboard cue, causing damage to both cues. Oh, no. Both cues were, were injured in, huh. in the fracas, yeah. So a no-contact order bars Hayden from coming within 500 feet of Sutton's residence or vehicle. Oh, and they can't uh, communicate with each other on social media, which apparently is not going to be an issue. <laughs> you so, paint quite a picture with this story. Two guys in their 80s <laughs> in a trailer park in St. Petersburg, Florida, <laughs> fighting over shuffleboard. That's uh, a slice of life. And worst of all, banned from the Internet. And off of their MySpace pages. 6.31 the time on Talk Radio 790K ABC. Rob Marinko with the headlines. 6.39 The Time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre this holiday week. Good Wednesday to you all. And with the holidays upon us, we thank you for choosing 790-KABC for talk about the day's news with context and honesty from Southern California personalities you know and like. Count on Doug McIntyre, Peter Tilden, Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood, and Julian Barbary and John Phillips, plus the NBC4 news crew for enlightening, relevant news and compelling, entertaining talk. News talk evolved. 790-KABC. So, Rob Marinko, there's, um, there's something called the resistance. Okay. Oh, the resistance. All it's right. a bunch of Democrats in Washington who mm -hmm. really, really hate the Trump cabinet nominees. Okay. And they are just not going to be taking this lying down, which to me is a little ironic because what was that expression? How did it go? Oh, yeah. Elections have consequences. <laughs> I heard that. Somewhere. And yeah, I think the Democrats have been saying <laughs> that for about eight years. And somebody was telling a story about how in the first couple of years of the Obama administration, when the Republicans were just dead in the water, I mean, they were in the minority in both houses. Of course, that led to Obamacare, not a single Republican vote, but it went through. Um, so the Republicans would sit down with the president and try to work something out. And the president would literally say to them, go win an election. That, that's the Republicans. They're quoting the presidency. Just, yeah. just go win an election. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, I'm busy here, pal, okay? Until well, then, they, I got a pen and a phone. Yeah. Well, they won a few elections. Yeah. Governorships <laughs> across the country, except California. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The House, the Senate. H huge mm. comeback. But it's just so ironic that... That the Democrats were just ragging on the Republicans about, oh, you know, go win an election. And then the ultimate irony to me was, I don't know, September and October, or October when Trump was just down. He was bloodied and everybody figured he was down and out. I don't know if it was before Billy Bush or not, but but people were saying, hey, are you going to respect the outcome of the election, right? Are you, gonna, are you going to just uh, be graceful about it? And he refused. He said, well, you know, it might be fraudulent. You know, we might protest. And people said, oh, they thought this was the apocalypse. Can you imagine nothing more important than respecting the power and the integrity <laughs> of the outcome of the American election? Can you imagine Donald Trump? Let's just add this as item number 47 for reasons he's a terrible person. You know, I'm I'm starting to think that, that was a big chess move, that he intentionally said, I'm not sure if I'm going to respect the results yeah. of the election, to get them to grandstand and for Hillary to say, <laughs> oh, that's horrifying, and this is where our country's built on, so they would have to eat their words when he won in November. Could be, could be. So now he wins, and he's picking these uh, cabinet nominees, and the, the tune is a little different from the Democrats. Uh, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal was saying that they're, they're even calling themselves, the Democrats uh, in the Senate, the resistance, because they are going to really 
really stand firm against these these uh, cabinet nominees. Uh, the 16 ranking members of the 16 uh, committees, of the Senate committees, that are going to vet nominees. They published a joint letter, uh, the Democrats did, claiming that Trump's transition is slow walking, full disclosure of key information about ethics and finances. They're threatening to delay or try to block committee votes. Uh, and especially with respect to Jeff Sessions for attorney general, uh, the Wall Street Journal points out he has been a fixture in Congress since 1996. He has been a senior member of the Judiciary Committee since 2009. And yet Diane Feinstein, our pal here in California, wrote a letter recently saying that Mr. Sessions is trying to frustrate the committee's due diligence as if anybody has any doubt as to his beliefs or qualifications to be attorney general. Uh, he's got a history of successful bipartisan legislation. It was a 1996 uh, crime bill about the rights of crime victims that Feinstein co-sponsored. He joined with Illinois uh, Senator Dick Turbin, oh, I'm sorry, Dick Durbin, uh, to eliminate the sentencing disparity for crack cocaine in 2009. He joined with Ted Kennedy to cut prison assault in 2006. He joined with Connecticut's uh, Democrat Senator Richard Blumenthal on child protection in 2011. Chuck Schumer has repeatedly praised Sessions' fairness and very good example. And yet, the resistance is just going to stand firm. They're, they're going to they're going to try to defeat. And the, the resistance, guy. Uh, that letter, what well, something it seemed like it was pretty long when all it had to say was wah wah yeah. wah. It does does not seem terribly mature. And the problem is again the Democrats sort of it's of their own making. They got rid of the filibuster rule. The the in the old days before Harry Reid changed the rule in 2013. Uh, if you're running the Senate, but there's a minority that's blocking a nomination because uh, you need 60 to stop the filibuster, they changed and got rid of the filibuster rule. And so now you don't you can't use a filibuster to stop the cabinet nominees. So as a practical matter and something unless something really weird happens, Sessions and the rest of them will get their jobs. But uh, it, it's not a pretty picture in in the Senate. They're uh, uh, they're, they're not behaving in a, in a really mature manner. Well, the resistance was going to be upset no matter who Trump picked. It's yeah, just that, that there, it's a Trump pick. I got to go hardline against him. Whoever wins, whoever loses an election, every election, you get the sore winner party and the sore loser party. And you got the the sore Italian restaurant owner in Honolulu. We were talking about that uh, earlier in the morning. <laughs> that you try to go to that restaurant and the sign says, uh, you, you yeah. can't eat here if well, you I'll voted you for something. Trump. No Nazis allowed. My prediction that no Nazis, no Trump voters allowed will last about a week when they look at the receipts and they go, you know what, we're, we're down business about 55%. And how racist and bigoted are you to call 60 million people in this country Nazis? Uh, I think Hitler, Hillary did just about the same thing. It's a, it, was, it was a pretty emotional time for us all. So uh, switching gears here, we got a bunch of new laws in California. You were just reporting on them, Rob, and uh, uh, but a whole lot of them are going to dramatically affect uh, people's lives. Uh, for openers, minimum wage, uh, just a small boost. Now it's the uh, uh, minimum wage will go up from ten bucks an hour to ten fifty. Uh, however, it's going up to fifteen dollars an hour in two thousand twenty-two. So that's that's already built in, baked into the cake. But you know, by twenty twenty-two, they're going to be fighting for twenty because now this is still not enough. That's true. That's true. We can always change. We I mean, I like the up. idea of fifteen dollars an hour. I don't think economically it works, but it's never going to be enough to have come up with the cost of living to live in Los Angeles. It's just going to make it harder. Well, the bottom line is if you if you have a minimum wage job, you're happy because it's going to go up. 
if you you don't get one because it no longer exists or because you get laid off because the boss says, you know, I'm kind of on the border between bankruptcy and non-banks. I, I, I can't do it. I got to lay you off. And now I got to pay you 22 an hour. Obviously, the economists love to argue about that stuff. Or the other owners would go, well, that's kind of expensive. You know, but automation in the long run is a lot cheaper. <laughs> that's true. Well, how is a minimum wage worker going to feel when they get their $15 an hour eventually and now they don't qualify for all the subsidies and benefits that they get for being in the poverty line. Yep. Uh, so uh, ultimately, they're not going to win. And I'm I'm for the workers, but if you get $15 an hour, but you lose your food stamps, now you're actually losing money. Yeah, but it's just so politically, uh, it's uh, irresistible for politicians to push it because they like to, like to give those goodies. Another big uh, new change in California on assault weapons. Uh, the lawmakers passed a package of bills to uh, strengthen California's already tough gun laws. So now uh, people who own magazines that hold more than 10 rounds will re be required to give them up starting on January 1. Uh, sexual assault sentencing. We've got a new law coming in. And, of course, it was uh, out of this uh, Stanford University swimmer uh, Brock Turner uh, case. Uh, he was given a six-month jail sentence for assaulting an unconscious woman. And everybody went nuts, and it had to result. It, the legislature has now passed a, a rule that, say, that says a victim cannot consent to sex while unconscious or incapacitated by drugs, alcohol, or medication, and sexually assaulting an unconscious or severely intoxicated person will become a crime ineligible for probation. And, you know, this is a, this is a situation where it takes the discretion away from the judge. And maybe that's a good idea. Maybe the outrage was justified because this guy was so over the top and being light. But, you know, there's a saying, hard cases make bad law. And when you have a really extreme situation and people react by saying, oh, we're going to run to Sacramento, we're going to change the law. I mean, there are some cases where you really do want the person right there uh, on the scene, the judge who looks into everybody's eyes and determines credibility to make the call. But in a situation like this, the legislature has decided, no, uh, we're not going to give any discretion to the judge to do that kind of thing. Uh, texting while driving, Rob Marinko, you're, you're going to have to be even more careful in the, in the new year because now uh, traffic apps may not be used while you're driving. Updating your Instagram account may not be done while you're driving. We've already got an existing ban on doing a whole bunch of stuff uh, while you're driving, texting. Uh, but this new law makes it clear that the use of any handheld device, uh, whether it's Instagram or traffic apps or whatever, that distracts from driving uh, is illegal, which to me seems kind of insane. I mean, who's going to stop checking to, you know, an app to find out you know, if they have to change because of heavy traffic. I mean, people are not going to stop doing that. They're going to get tickets. Is it legal for me to drive with my Thomas guide? That's that's <laughs> a good lap, question. Thumbing yeah. through the pages. Because that's what up. I'm going to have to do now because I can't uh, look at my Google Maps. That's exactly well, right. Of course, I need a magnifying glass to read my Thomas guide now. Let's but. be a little bit more clear about this. The law specifically says that you must affix your phone's, whether a right. smart device or, or your nav device, whatever it is, Onto the dash or onto another permanent part of the car. Right. And you may use it and you may actually touch it if it's a one finger swipe. Let's say to go to the next uh, 
app or to oh, update is it or that whatever. specific? It's Not only you specific. have to have it mounted, but it has to be a swipe thing. It can't be a, a yeah. A, you can't type in. It could be a one oh, finger motion to uh, to change the. Uh, so what the we should be do is doing is investing in these mounting devices and the one finger oh, swipe people devices. People doing it for a while. There's a lot of them out there. I'm sure car consoles are going to come to a point where you just pop your phone right. right in into the dock. Now, Royal, I have a very important question for you. This affects Rob and I greatly. Okay, I'm sitting down. The law says, you know, no handheld devices. Could a cheeseburger be considered a device? <laughs> Great point. <laughs> well, you know, and it gets back to your point about the Thomas Guide. We're all about technology and so on, but if there's no ban, I mean, obviously if the cop sees you fussing with your Thomas Guide and you 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 kill a boatload of nuns because of that, then you're going to be accused of, of, of committing a crime because you were fussing with something that wasn't a technology. But, I mean, technology is just overwhelming. Well, first of all, if you kill a boatload of nuns, nuns while you're driving you got a lot of other problems yeah that's true it would be, almost be like you'd have to be anti-catholic to go out of your way yeah, you'd have to be in the ocean for god's sake <laughs> and what are all these nuns doing on a boat exactly a lot of questions here royal you guys are just taking me too literally that's all there is to it so as far as i know it's still legal for me to hold a soda in one hand a burger in the other hand and drive with my knees yeah i and that, most people do oh, that lord uh, yeah, no, I think it's all about the technology. We're, we're kind of ignoring the the other kinds of distractions. All right, another new law here in California in, 19, in 2017, uh, school mascot ban. Uh, if you are thinking, Rob Marinko, about opening up a high school and calling the sports team the Redskins, yeah. forget about it. Why? It's illegal. It is well, specifically word. illegal to use the name Redskins oh, for a sports team or a mascot. That's Didn't nuts. they do a survey of American Indian indigenous population people? Yes. And Who they cares? said, we Who don't cares? have a problem with Redskins. Well, look, we got a team in L.A. called the Rams. That's offensive to every other football team. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you consider them a football team at this point. <laughs> They'll come back. They'll get Jan John But, Arnett yeah, the people that are offended retirement. by Redskins are the professionally offended. Yeah. The people who make a whole living off of being offended by things and bring up lawsuits and going to the Department of Justice and saying, this is not fair. You know, but like we have, we still have Indians teams. My high school, the Hart High, that's the Indians. Isn't that just as offensive as Redskins? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Washington Redskins football team has taken so much crap about their name, but do the Cleveland Indians get any kind of grief? I mean, and they've got that logo, logo with just, a really goofy looking wow. Indian. Not a, not a noble red man. No. Their logo is a guy that doesn't look like you know he would be performing brain surgery and drank too much fire water is what he looks like well here's the thing with that so the indians were in the world series this right. year against the cubs i read that and the tradition every year is when you win the when you win the world series and you lose the world series you already have a bunch of t-shirts made up that said 2016 world champions cleveland indians and the tradition has been that you donate those to charity in like a third world country they were so worried that Chief Wahoo was going to offend somebody, they burned all of the 2016 oh, World Champion kidding. Cleveland Indians uh, winners. That's amazing. And yet they still have maintain the same logo. I mean, the guys go out on the, on the field with the ball cap every game. That is totally insane. Well, but, I mean, getting back to the idea of offense, the official explanation for the legislature banning Redskins is that American Indians regard the term as, as offensive. But unless you guys have heard something different, I've I've read studies or surveys saying that American Indians just don't feel that exactly. way. Exactly. So yep. it's kind of nutty. So child safety seats, it's another uh, new law. Kids under two have to be in rear-facing child restraint systems unless 
they weigh 40 or more pounds or are 40 or more inches tall. If you have a 40-pound two-year-old, you have other problems. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably because, you know, you've been eating the cheeseburger and having the, I've seen the, some the, the Sweetums uh, drink with two hands while you're drinking. Some adults are so bad looking that you'd rather they face backwards. <laughs> 6.53 the time. Nah, Talk Radio joke. 7, 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Stay with us uh, when we come back. Some unbelievable modern art right now let's have some believable traffic with bill thomas 659 the time talk radio 790 kbc royal oaks in for doug mcintyre so rob marenko i know you're a big modern art fan oh yeah rome italy um yep. art, art museum uh there was a display called where shall we go dancing tonight and it consisted of empty champagne bottles spent party poppers and the janitor came by that night uh -oh. and threw it out. Can you imagine? I mean, it's like tossing out the Mona Lisa. Well. So, I mean, it's <laughs> Except gone. this was garbage. Yeah, it was garbage. Well, that was idea. It was about consumerism in the 1980s. But the good news is they were able to kind of reassemble a whole bunch of garbage. Yeah, and they the just emptied the, the can next, back out the of the floor. The next day was back. Everything was fine. <laughs> so uh, Michelangelo's David and the rest of the works mm. of art were safe there. Hey. Another few hours to go when we come back. Rebecca Kagan of Vanity Fair talking about Carrie Fisher. Stay with us on KABC. 7.05 the time. Talk radio is 7.90 KABC Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. Happy Wednesday to you all. Hope you're enjoying this nice relaxing week. Hey, the Kings play here Wednesday at 6.30. Uh, that's tonight. And they uh, take on the Vancouver Canucks with Nick Nixon and Daryl Evans on the call. It's Kings versus Canucks tonight at 6.30 on the home of the Kings, 7.90 KABC. Later this half hour, Rob Marinko, um, intriguing story out of Pennsylvania. A woman is being sent to jail for being too loud during sex. So we'll get you the details on that. All right. Uh, you know, just... just Boy, there's so many directions we can go with that well it's it's a legitimate news story mm -hmm. i mean i do not make this stuff up so uh boy talk about a, a huge news story um it seems like just an overwhelming number of of celebrity deaths uh this year i, I guess somebody could run an algorithm and figure out if, if statistically it's uh, worse than average but you know with george michael so recently and throughout the year prince and gary shandling and and, of course, now Carrie Fisher. Uh, we're very fortunate to be joined by Rebecca Keegan, Vanity Fair Hollywood correspondent, uh, to talk to us about Carrie Fisher. Rebecca, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, but I'm feeling sad about Carrie Fisher. Absolutely. What an amazing life story. I mean, everybody's been talking about how she was born into Hollywood royalty and, of course, not just into royalty, but just a major league soap opera in terms of, I guess she was two years old when Elizabeth... Taylor uh, connected with her dad, Eddie Fisher. But then, you know, to become an iconic part of really the ultimate showbiz franchise, Star Wars, uh, just what a remarkable life. What, what are your impressions? I know you've been reporting on her life. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. When she played uh, Princess Leia, she was just 19 years old. And a lot of actresses could have taken that part, and it would have been you know, kind of a pretty girl part. She's part of the action. She's 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 a fun character, there's no doubt. But there was something about the sort of intelligence of Carrie Fisher and the wit of Carrie Fisher that really made that role um, kind of larger than life. What's interesting to me is that, so she has this iconic role when she's just a kid, essentially, and she evolves into this fascinating 
writer, public figure, person who is actually more interesting than this iconic character she played. It's unusual to see that. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, in her world of show business, I think tend, their tendency is to sort of worship the volume of the fame and the number of Oscars, the, the, uh, the how, how revered you are as, as a big-time actor. And there was a whole lot more to her than that. Now, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe if she had her druthers, she would have been more like her mom, Debbie Reynolds, you know, gorgeous, uh, singer, dancer, big star. Because I, I don't know that, that Carrie Fisher ever actually uh, moved into that realm of being the top A-list star. Instead, there was just so much more to her uh, of substance, intelligence, as you say, writing ability. I, I don't know if, if folks who interviewed her or knew her well knew how she really felt about the arc of her career. Well, you know, it's interesting. You started out by mentioning that when she's two years old, her father, Eddie Fisher, uh, leaves her mother, Debbie Reynolds, for Liz Taylor. If you want a sort of microcosm of how you learn that in Hollywood, things that look perfect often aren't, that's a that's a great example. Uh, and I think she learned early on that having all the accolades, having the beauty, really did not get you happiness. And in fact, a lot of other sort of painful and uncomfortable things could come with that. So she she quickly kind of fashioned herself as a person who had these other facets. I also, I don't know to what extent she, um, she, she could have been any other way. You know, she was sort of relentlessly honest and candid. She did talk to people about her career and she she what was kind of unique about her was her complete self-awareness that for many 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 people she was Leia and would be nothing more and that was okay with her um she 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 got that in a way that sometimes other actors who who have those roles end up resenting them and sort of spending the rest of their career trying to prove something she didn't go that way she just sort of accepted it and and worked on these other projects her her uh memoir wishful drinking her sort of um fictional fictionalized version of her life with her mother postcards from the edge which of course became a movie with meryl streep she she just did other things we're talking to uh, rebecca keegan vanity fair hollywood correspondent about carrie fisher of course yeah i saw um carrie fisher's a one-woman show i guess it was based on the wishful drinking uh, memoir. Right. Uh, I think it was in Westwood several years ago, and it was just amazing. Uh, and, and you wondered at the time, is, is this therapeutic for her to, to not only put it down on paper, but then actually act it out? But but it was she did a marvelous job and just such a fascinating, fascinating life. I mean, you, you wonder when you when you think about, uh, for example, her marriage to Paul Simon. I mean, another enormously iconic person. You wonder if people uh, in that world are kind of trapped in that world. And for example. Let's say she she met some insurance salesman from Duluth who you know made a couple of million dollars a year as some insurance people do. So uh, I guess she would never consider really going down that road and having a relationship with him because I would think that she would see her life as so inextricably intertwined with celebrity and show business that uh, she'd have to put up with all all of the demons and, and the pitfalls and and the and the vulnerabilities of that life as opposed to just you know settling down and, and having a, a so-called normal life. Well, you know, I, the truth is I don't know the answer to that. I do know that I have asked other famous women that question. I once asked Lauren Bacall that question. You know, why didn't you ever just date an accountant? You were always with these, (laughs) 
cares, you know, uh, obviously Bogart, but Robards and, and, and these huge personalities. And she said to me, those guys never ask me out. Those guys never walk across the room and ask a movie star out. Now, I don't know if regular guys ask. Uh, Carrie asked Carrie Fisher out. She has a very accessible, sort of warm personality that I think makes people, regular people, think they can cross the room and talk to her. But odds are, you know, she was she was in circles with other actors, and that's mm-hmm. who she was meeting. I mean, one of the stories that she told recently that people are kind of enjoying is that she had had a, an affair with Harrison Ford in the make, during the making of the first Star Wars movie. She had talked about having a crush on him over the years, but then with her most recent book revealed that I think it, these are diaries from the set revealed that it went beyond a crush and was a real relationship. We're talking with Rebecca Keegan of Vanity Fair. And um, of course, in a sense, I think maybe Carrie Fisher was appreciated more within uh, show business circles because of her uh, reputation as being so brilliant, such a great writer. Uh, she would be a script doctor. She she wrote the uh, wonderful books and so on. So maybe in a sense, people inside her own business uh, respected her and appreciated her more than the general public because she didn't make that breakthrough as you know an A list star on her own. And wonderful roles and and when Harry met Sally and so on. And obviously the iconic deal with Star Wars, but but you know never really turned into Meryl Streep. Right. And I, I, you know, it's interesting. I do think a lot of people in show business respected her, her sharpness as a writer. She worked on movies like uh, Sister Act and Hook and The Wedding Singer, where she did these little sort of uncredited rewrites. She would punch up the jokes, you know, very well beloved and respected by people like Spielberg and George Lucas, who knew that she could sort of work on a script and, and really give it uh, a little bit of a Midas touch. I do think it was she was beloved too for her willingness to sort of be a real person. And this, I think, is felt outside Hollywood. If you watch her interviews with journalists, she will often be asked a question that's sort of rude. Where you know journalists, we are kind of rude, but she'll be asked a question that's sort of rude or personal, and she answers in ways that are funny and that make make a point that the question's rude. She did this interview with Good Morning America where she was asked about losing weight and she just handled it in the most hilarious way that pointed out what an absurd question that is uh, to ask anyone. Um, so she she had this ability to kind of transcend stardom. So no, she never did become Meryl Streep. Instead, she was just fully Carrie Fisher, which was this great person uh, for so many of us. And it's so sad uh, to think that that she's gone so soon, so early. And you think of the other celebrities this year, George Michael. Uh, you know, obviously he had all the, these demons, and his his career was cut short uh, by all of that. And somebody like Gary Shandling. I mean. What an an enormous, towering figure in the world of comedy. Two just huge, groundbreaking shows, and, my gosh, gone way, way too soon. I mean, he could have been around for, for decades more to you know, bring joy not only into his personal friends and family, but, you know, countless millions. So it's just been kind of a, a sad year overall, as I started out saying. I don't know if statistically it really is a, uh, if we've lost more celebrities than usual, but it, it just seems like there was a quite a, a tsunami of celebrity deaths this year. It does, and I've been wondering, am I just getting older, and so now it's the people I grew up loving, or is this <laughs> actually, actually a thing? But I'm, I tell you, I'm ready for 2016 to to be over. I've ha- I've had enough. Well, just a few days to go. Rebecca Keegan of Vanity Fair, thank you so much for uh, sharing part of this uh, nice, slow, relaxed week with us. You have a great New Year's. 
You too. Take care. Thanks a lot. Time is 7.15 on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. We are going to shift gears and get into a, a phenomenon that people have been talking about. Apparently, Rob Marinko, it's a real thing. People uh, kind of workaholic in America. People don't give up their, uh, they don't take their vacation time uh, the way people do in other countries. Uh, and we are delighted to be uh, joined with an explanation for this by Sarah Berger. She's a reporter with Bankrate. Uh, Sarah, how are you doing there? Good. Good. How are you? Well, doing great, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. And uh, so apparently this is a, a real thing statistically. It's not just a, a suspicion people have. About 52% of Americans apparently are giving up vacation time that they, they could have and should have taken. Yeah, so that's over half of all working Americans that are given paid vacation time that aren't taking off all the time that they are entitled to. And the people that aren't taking their time off are typically leaving a lot of it. The average number of days that people will leave unused is 19, while the median is 7. So, you know, that's a significant amount of time that people are just giving up. Sarah, so the obvious question I would be, is this always economically driven or is it not? Well, the number one reason um, why people are giving up time this year that our survey found um, was actually pretty strategic on the part of employees, people who work at companies that have policies that allow unused vacation time to roll over into the next year are taking advantage of that. And that was the number one reason, um, followed by just having too much work to do. And then the third most popular reason was actually enjoying work. So that's that's a positive finding in, in, in the survey. So. Well, Sarah, what are you, a comedian? What do you mean enjoying work? Who do you talk People to that says they enjoy their work so much that they'd rather go to work as opposed to have a day off and, you know, go out and fish or shoot pool or whatever? I mean, that's why right. they call it work, right? Are you serious? Are, you, are there actually people who show up at, at work feeling, gosh, you know, I'd rather be here than just about any place else? Yes, sixteen percent of people in our survey said Whoa. that they enjoyed working. Um, so that so that was pretty surprising, but it was also pretty positive that people are doing things that they love. Um, but aside from that, I also think that there's just this perception in this, in, especially in this country in our culture, that skipping out on your vacation time kind of makes you seem like a better employee, and maybe that you're um, harder working and um, you deserve that raise or whatever it is. Um, but countless studies have shown that that's just not true, that if you don't take your time off, it'll hurt your career in the long run. We're talking with Sarah Berger, reporter for Bankrate, about the fact 52% of Americans are giving up vacation time. What about stark uh, raving fear, uh, Sarah? Uh, isn't it true that a lot of folks are probably reluctant to uh, to take time off because they're worried, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, what if the boss brings in uh, a temp and uh, and they do better than I do? And, yeah, and, and, like I'm, out, and I'm out of here. Bob, Bob the Bob on the commercials. Account him, exactly. Sure. I haven't heard him on the air recently, but hopefully they'll be back soon. Is that a phenomenon? That is, um, that's definitely a fear that is out there. We had 4% of people saying that they're afraid that their job will be at risk if they take too much time off. And also, I think it just goes back to the common perception, misperception of um, thinking that you'll look like a bad employee if you take your time off and that, you know, it'll, it'll look bad on your part. Um, but that's just not the case. Um, employers that that recognize that a productive employee is one that is well rested um, shouldn't shouldn't um, you know get mad at their employees or make them feel like they shouldn't take time off. I love that Cadillac commercial a couple of years ago 
where the guy he was a villain from uh, oh what was the uh, what was the program about the federal marshal in Tennessee I've forgotten the name of the show but anyway the the Cadillac commercial showed a guy uh, who said uh, you know what here in America uh, we went to the moon and we left the car on the moon with the keys in it because we knew nobody was going back for it <laughs> and then he said the French they take August off they take August off. So he's this hard-driving guy. To me, it was not only funny, but it symbolized the idea that yeah, we've kind of become more of a workaholic culture. And it sounds like that is manifesting itself in these statistics that people just aren't taking the paid vacation this year, just lying there uh, ready for the taking. Yeah, and it definitely seems like something that is um, a trend. What we found was that younger millennials in particular, the ones that aren't taking a lot of time off, 25% of them, so that they won't use any of their paid vacation days, and that was significantly higher than older generations. Um, so this is definitely not, this affects all age demographics, especially younger workers. So that was another interesting point that we found. I just remember the name of the show. Justified is the show, and uh, the white-haired villain is the guy from the Cadillac commercial. I think it was good enough it made it into the, the Super Bowl lineup. Uh, Sarah Berger, what about the idea that smartphones basically screens that have just become so massively important in our lives they have caused work to bleed into our personal lives so that we're all kind of 24 7 on the job is that do you think contributing to the the blurring between work and, and vacation people not taking vacations I definitely think that um, that's an issue that employees are facing. And even in my own social circles, when, you know, I see my friends constantly at dinner, you get your emails sent to your phone, um, you have Slack on your phone, you're constantly in contact with your team members. Um, one friend of mine was telling me about, you know, he took some time off and went to the beach and he was like, I was slacking while on the beach. Um, I aming my team members from my phone. It's just hard to disconnect. And I think that's that's something that, is a problem, especially facing um, this generation. We're talking to Sarah Berger of a bank, right? So you got some interesting stats. You've alluded to some of them. 64% of U.S. workers get paid vacation days, but only 47% say they will use all of them. And as to millennials, a quarter of millennials between 18 and 25 say they don't use any vacation. And so you say this, uh, this workaholic approach is kind of embedded in the country's culture. Do you think that the bosses really believe in the notion of taking time to recharge, to recharge the battery? Everybody talks about how important that is. But, you know, the bottom line is the bottom line. And don't you think most companies kind of appreciate the fact that people are taking less vacation and maybe the idea of recharging their battery isn't such a big deal? Um, I, I actually would, I, I don't really think that that's always the case. Um, well, I've what been I've wrong before, is, so this <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. What I've noticed is, um, just from, you know, my own observations, that a lot of companies are starting to adopt, um, self-managed paid time off or unlimited vacation time to kind of encourage employees to take the time off that they need. If they feel like they need a break or need to recharge, they don't have to worry about, oh, I only have three days left off this year. They can kind of take it at their own pace and strike the work-life balance that they feel is appropriate for their own lives. Um, so I think that in, in some cases, employers are recognizing that you know, encourage your employees to take the time off that they feel like they personally need. Um, but, you know, every case is different. And um, I would hope that employers would recognize that 
having that work-life balance is essential to having a productive employee. Sarah, we just did a story not too long ago that there are some employers who have taken that a step further by providing financial incentives in addition to paid vacations to employees who take all of their vacation time. They're actually giving their... They're giving their their employees money to spend on their vacation wow. because they want them to go on vacation. That's pretty awesome. I think that's pretty cool. All right, we got um, one. We got one vote in favor of that. <laughs> hey, Sarah Berger <laughs> of Bankrate. Thank you so much for sharing uh, part of your day. You have a great New Year's. You too. Happy right. New Year. Take care. Time is seven twenty four on Talk Radio seven ninety K A B C Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, as I mentioned earlier, Rob, there is this important story of a Pennsylvania woman. She's in jail because she was too loud during sex. We'll get you the details shortly. Right now, Bill Thomas details on traffic. Seven thirty nine. It makes me want to stand in a day long <laughs> bread line. Seven thirty nine. The time. Uh, Talk radio. Seven ninety K A B C Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. This holiday week. Yeah, Randy selected to find uh, a, a Russian <laughs> tune because we're. You we're know gonna... what's disturbing to me is how soon, how quickly that was handy for Randy. It's like he, it's part of his collection. It's right there. It right is there. on my favorites. Well, don't don't call me a communist. I just like good music. We're gonna we're gonna check in uh, on uh, a topic. Uh, it boils down to the question: Is communism cool? And it's a very scary question because apparently millennials uh, these days uh, think, uh, yeah, not not a big problem there. Well, we don't. Really Read the whole history book. You just skim through a couple of chapters and say, hey, free health care. Yeah, exactly. That's what it boils down to. Hey, check out our news website, kbc.com, for news as it happens. Updated by CNN and KABC News. You can also listen live and download podcasts of all of our shows so you never have to miss a minute. Plus pictures and videos from behind the scenes at KBC. Check it out today, kbc.com. Before we get to whether communism is cool... Uh, you were talking a minute ago, Rob Marinko, about the idea of uh, the star, and some folks were saying uh, Carrie Fisher, they're surprised Carrie Fisher doesn't have a star. I don't quite get that. What's with this mourning period? Uh, you have to wait five years after somebody dies before they can get a star? Is that the deal? Well, you know, the whole Hollywood star thing's a scam to begin with. People that get stars pay to get those stars. Exactly, and it's tied to openings, big movies, and so on. I mean, you walk down Hollywood Boulevard, you go into Musso and Frank's for a martini, and you look down, and there's Wilbur Terwilliger. He was, you know, chief gaffer on It Happened One Night. I loved his work. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to be a big star. I mean, why radio no Carrie, people with stars? Why no Carrie Fisher? I mean, Fatty Arbuckle's personal trainer has a star, okay? <laughs> Doodles Weaver's hairdresser has a star. Paul Rubin's feng shui consultant has a star, no. okay? No, it's true. Oh, so why man. wouldn't they have given Carrie Fisher a star? I think it gets back to our comments uh, with, uh, with I guess, Rebecca Keegan of Vanity Fair. She didn't break through as an A-list star on her own. She had so many other things going on in her life, and she had the iconic status for Princess Leia and so on. But maybe there just wasn't that moment when 20th Century Fox said, oh, yeah, that'll pump up the, the, the B.O. for uh, Carrie's new picture. We'll get her a star i think that's why it didn't happen okay fine but uh five years uh, after you die why why would they do that hey you want a little waiting period how about one year or six months that's idiotic yeah i understood and i can be completely wrong god knows that's happened before but if you have 12 to 15 thank you right if you've got 12 to 15 grand this is what i heard a couple of few years back and you have a couple of sponsors uh you can get a star i, I don't think it's a five-year wait 
Now, I'm not disagreeing with this woman if she's uh, some sort of official that you know, is in control of the star facts. But it seems to me you can... If, well, if here's the deal. Well, Anybody can get on with enough money except yeah. for one person. They've well, only denied one person to get a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and that's Kim Kardashian. Really? Because she had the money. she'd been excluded. But hey, she's not a star. Guys, here, here's an idea. I think we put, we pool our money together uh-huh. and pool our influence. When, when you say we, can you be a little everybody bit more in the building? Everybody counselor? in the building, yeah. And I'm talking Les Siegel because his movie reviews have gotten to the point. I mean, the buzz is out there. Uh, I th- I'd rather see Les Siegel's name down there than Wilbur Terwilliger. Oh, don't absolutely. You? Okay, even though you admire we'll put Les Siegel's star right next to Michael Jackson's. <laughs> Whatever works, I I just think we ought to think about it. So, okay, is communism cool? Very scary headline to a Wall Street Journal op-ed piece the other day. You folks gotta gotta check it out. Go online. This guy Andrew Clark of uh, Generation Opportunity is a millennial himself, and he is really making a good point. He is saying that millennials don't get it. They haven't studied it. They haven't gotten it in school. They don't realize that, mm, you know, communism slash socialism, not so cool. A Gallup poll last year said 70% of U.S. millennials would be willing to vote for a socialist presidential candidate. And get this, barely half of millennials believe, quote, communism was or is a problem. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> well, the key is, again, it's not taught. History's not taught anymore. And I'll tell you something. What is taught once you get into college with the knucklehead professors is that there's this a narrative about religion, how religion causes all the wars and how many people have died as a result of religion. Well, it turns out that non-religion and communism has killed a lot more people, tens and tens of millions. Absolutely, and they've done very careful studies, and they've come up with about 100 million people who were basically executed or starved by Mao Zedong, about 80 million people by Joseph Stalin, and the millennials, 10% have positive feelings about Joseph Stalin. They don't it, know who Joseph Stalin is. They heard the name. I guess. That is the fifth beetle. They don't know. 18%? Well, there was Lenin in there. 18% uh, think favorably about Mao Zedong. And, you know, Che Guevara was a murderous thug. Yep. And, oh, my God, he's an icon. Everybody, you know, is walking around with the T-shirts. Half the people wearing those T-shirts do not know who Che Guevara is. Uh, you're probably right. But the bottom line, I think, is that they these, these people are thought of as celebrities. And they don't realize that what Fidel Castro did, regardless of how horrible Batista, the the dictator in Cuba was, and let's assume he was up there with Stalin, it doesn't matter. There's no excuse for running a prison camp from 1959 until today where people can't worship, can't travel. If you disagree with Castro, you're killed. You're, you're, you know, they actually, had, they actually had fire hoses mm-hmm. that, that they used to get people off of the boats and the rafts so that they would drown between Cuba and Florida. I mean, it's just totally insane. And the millennial t- you but 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 they got top-notch health care and education oh and and in prison of course you you get literate in prison and you have a doctor whenever you need it who cares if, if you if these people's lives are totally ruined and run and one thing that you didn't get from the mainstream media is on obama's trip to cuba a few months back one thing was never mentioned is that the cuban government shot down a couple of planes and murdered americans that were flying near Cuba trying to rescue people that were trying to escape Cuba in rafts. 
It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's, it's a story that should have been told. Well, now that we're all lathered up, we need to pause. It's 746 right, so on a Wednesday morning. I'm Royal Oaks up. in for Doug McIntyre. And let's see how things look on the freeways. The Bill Thomas. 806 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for McIntyre this week. And we are delighted to be joined by Jake Tapper, CNN anchor of The Lead with Jake Tapper and State of the Union on Sunday mornings. Jake, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing super. And uh, gosh, I, I just have to ask you right off, have you ever seen a president-elect act more like a president? It, it just seems like he's hitting the ground running more so than, than the president's uh, elect in recent memory. What, what's your take on that? I think it's definitely true that uh, he's, he's um, I don't know if violating is the right word, but breaking from norms <laughs> uh, when it comes to the president-elect kind of just being quiet between Bending tradition. Uh, the election and the inauguration. Um, uh, by the same token, I would have to say that, uh, to be fair, I, you know, I think President Obama is kind of breaking from norms, too. I mean, he's been very active uh, in setting foreign policy for the, for the United States that the incoming president disagrees with. Um, specifically, I'm referring to, to Israel. Uh, and then also, you know, he made a comment the other day about how he thought if he had run for reelection, you know, if that were constitutionally permitted, that he would have won. Um, so those are also some norms that are you know to be fair uh the president is breaking from them as well sure it seemed like oh it seemed like trump was almost in awe of obama in the first few days after the election he seemed deferential uh they had that oval office meeting i mean it was almost kind of like a bromance uh, between them and you wondered if if the president was trying to use this opportunity to maybe do a little lobbying with donald trump since then you know twitter feuds broken out and so on i'm just wondering if if you if you if you think that there really was something going on in the first week or two after the election where they were kind of feeling each other out and and whether donald trump really was uh behaving differently than than people would expect yeah i think so i mean first of all you know we can't you know underline enough the 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 point that donald trump did not think he was going to win i mean he has said as much since uh election day he did not think he was going to win so i think he uh, he was a little taken aback by the moment he looked kind of gobsmacked yeah and also and also respectful of of the office, um, President Obama, I think, respecting the peaceful transfer of power and also trying to use the opportunity, as you note, to you know, lobby Trump behind the scenes uh, when it comes to specific policies, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think things have broken down. I'm not sure when it began. I mean, it, it, on the surface, it looks like it began when, when uh, the president-elect kind of started getting ahead of his skis, at least in terms of policy, and talked about Taiwan and talked about China and <clears throat> tried to try to disregard the conclusions of the of the intelligence community in this country when it comes to the role of Russia. Uh, but whether or not that was what set it off or not, now we're in a point where both men are kind of eyeing each other warily from across the room, um, not quite going at each other, <clears throat> but uh, but certainly um, it, it's not the the warm feeling that I think a lot of people felt uh, in that Oval Office meeting. Jake, are, are you aware of there being any kind of inkling of further surprises? Maybe, you know, we've had obviously the Israeli situation at the UN and, and 
Just a couple of days ago, the president made hundreds of millions of acres of potential oil uh, bearing land off limits and federal land and such. Do you have any kind of a vibe in uh, around the Beltway that there may be a few more surprises in store? Well, I mean, he ha- <clears throat> he has a month left, uh, and I would be surprised if he if he didn't take some executive actions uh, or enact some things that he thought could help cement his legacy. Most presidents do that. There's also he has been, um, you know, uh, giving pardons and commutations at a record pace uh, in his presidency, especially for people who were um, convicted of drug crimes uh, that he thought were excessive. Um, in terms of walking out the door, I mean, I'm not sure. There are so many different things he could theoretically do. Uh, I mean, um, for one example, this is just a random one that I was talking about with yesterday. Jonathan Pollard, uh, the Israeli spy who was uh, released by the Justice Department a few years ago, Pollard is still in house arrest in New York. Um, uh, and I think that's a five-year sentence for house arrest. Uh, President Obama could pardon him, tell him, go ahead, go fly off to Israel, you know, do what you do. Uh, or he could extend the, the sentence to 15 years. I mean, and nobody really has any idea what he will do, if anything. Um, there are any number of things. You talked about the environmental moves that the president made. Those were not through executive action. Those were through law. So in order to undo them, President-elect uh, Trump would have to actually sue to undo them. He couldn't just uh, undo them through executive action. So there's any number of things. And, I, and frankly, I would be stunned if he didn't do some more things uh, that, that surprised us. We're talking with Jake Tapper, CNN anchor of The Lead with Jake Tapper and State of the Union on Sundays. Jake, it seems like the thing between the president and um, Netanyahu was personal. And I'm wondering if if you think it really was a, a personal clash between them. And if so, what was the origin of that? I mean, well, how did it get to that point? I don't think, I mean, I don't think they like each other, um, but I, I think it's really more policy than personal. I mean, I think President Obama is very animated by the issue of settlements and the Palestinian-Israeli peace process. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, he is convinced that Netanyahu is uh, leading Israel down the wrong path. Uh, and I think Netanyahu very strongly disagrees uh, and believes that the Israelis have the right to build these settlements and the settlements and the land is really the only um, their only card in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think they just fundamentally disagree about the role of settlements and about the process going forward. Uh, I think it's actually very uh, a very principled disagreement that is exacerbated by the fact that they do not like each other and there have been moves that they have been doing to each other uh, for years, um, mainly, to be honest, um, moves by Netanyahu in terms of speaking to uh, Congress to oppose the Iran deal at the invitation of John Boehner, the then Speaker of the House, um, settlement activities being announced when during different visits, um, most notably when Vice President Biden went to Israel uh, early on in his first term. So, I, I mean, I think there have been moves here and there, but I really do think this is mainly about policy. Uh, Netanyahu looks at Obama and says, you know, Syria is a a, a site of genocide and terrorists rising. The Sudan is a site of genocide. Uh, Russia hacked into your elections. Uh, China is hacking into your companies. And you are making the number one foreign policy focus of your last days, whether or not Israel builds settlements on on the West Bank and East Jerusalem. 
uh, and President Obama, you know, feeling that this is a very important issue for him and that uh, he does not think Israel has a future uh, under the on the path that, that Netanyahu is leading. You mentioned Obama's comment about how he would win a third term. Do you think that was more a slam against Hillary or more a defense of his legacy? I mean, who knows how much to believe about, you know, that Klein book of blood feud where, you know, the Obamas didn't invite the Clintons to a social event the entire first four years, although she was obviously secretary of state. Do you, how did you see his comment about the, him winning a third term? Uh, I mean, I, I see it in, in two ways. One, he was talking about the context that he doesn't think the United States and the voters of the United States were rejecting him and his vision of leadership. I mean, that was the, that was the subject, the general subject of the conversation. And uh, people should listen to nor read the, the transcript of the conversation. It's uh, David Axrod uh, interviewing him, interviewing the president for uh, the Axe Files, um, A-X-E Files. Right. Um, so I think that was the larger point he was making. No, this wasn't a rejection of me or my view of America. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, and I think if I had won, then with my message, I would have won. But that said, uh, you know, you cannot ignore the fact that there is an implicit swipe at both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump uh, in those remarks. Um, and this is a reminder that, you know, I think that that uh, that there is a tremendous amount of ego uh, on display uh, when it comes to both Donald Trump and, and President Obama. And yes, they're very different people. I'm not saying that they're the same or whatever, but Sometimes they both can be graceless uh, in their regard for themselves uh, as opposed to others. I mean, there's no there's no need for him to say that President Obama. He's leaving office with, you know, approval ratings in the 50s uh, higher than Donald Trump's. I mean, I think most people, you know, most people think that President Obama, if he'd run for a third term, probably would win. On the other hand, who knows? It doesn't really even matter. It's a, it's a hypothetical and it's against the Constitution. Um, so why even make a comment like that? Well, because sometimes defending your own legacy is more important than uh, the incoming president-elect or the former Democratic uh, presidential nominee, I guess, in, in the president's mind. And, and again, he's a man of tremendous dignity, President Obama, but he's not always a man of grace. Uh, and I think uh, the same is true for the president-elect. We're chatting with Jake Tapper, CNN anchor of The Lead with Jake Tapper and State of the Union on Sunday. So uh, the Wall Street Journal was talking the other day about how the, the uh, Senate Democrats calling themselves the resistance. Uh, with the filibuster rules changed, though, courtesy of Harry Reid, uh, so really all Trump needs is a majority, I think, not the not the 60 votes. In spite of all the controversy about Sessions and Tillerson and so on, is it really realistic to think that uh, the Democrats can stop any of these guys? Well, I mean, the filibuster rules, I mean, Harry Reid changed them for some appointments, not for all. Um, I think he changed them for judicial appointments, um, not for cabinet appointments. Um, you know, Republicans have 53 seats, um, and uh, that's enough for a majority. But in terms of a filibuster, I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, I would be amazed if, um, if uh, like, for instance, um, General Mattis, James Mattis, who's been nominated to be Secretary of Defense, if he didn't sail through. I mean, most cabinet appointments get confirmed overwhelmingly at the very, you know, uh, in, in many cases even. Uh, I don't think one's been rejected since John Tower during the George H.W. Bush administration. Right. Usually they get withdrawn ahead of time. Um, we'll have to see what's in their documents. I mean, the investigations internally on the committees is going on right now in terms of tax problems and the like you know, potential tax problems. So I don't know. I, I don't right now. I don't know of any that are going to that I think, oh, no, he's not going to get confirmed. 
Um, people told me, uh, Republican Senate sources told me that if he had nominated Petraeus, that would have been a problem. If he had nominated Giuliani, that would have been a problem. But neither of them were nominated. So um, I, I don't know. We'll have to see. Trump's uh, refusal to give up the reins of uh, corporate power seems like it could be uh, a real lurking problem. Uh, what Do you think that the conflict of interest issue is just going to blossom in, in the first six months or so of the Trump administration? I think if he doesn't take a serious step to really wall off himself from his business, and I don't mean wall off, you know, by putting your, his sons in charge of it. Um, I mean like an actual blind trust, uh, if not um, complete divestment, uh, then I think he's going to be haunted by this. I mean, you know, just look at what Penny Pritzker did. She's the current Secretary of Commerce. Just look at what she did to just to become Secretary of Commerce. She um, sold off millions and millions of dollars in assets. She resigned from more than 100 boards. She did. Uh, she took incredible steps. And that was just to become the Secretary of Commerce in the second Obama term. To, I think it's a real mistake. I'm not saying this. Uh, I, I think that even those people who want Donald Trump to succeed with all their hearts, the most ardent Trump supporters, should really hope that he does whatever he can to remove these conflicts of interest from uh, from his presidency, because I think they will be a problem for him. Uh, they will give fuel to his opponents. They will cast decisions he makes in unfavorable lights, even when they shouldn't necessarily be. And, um, you know, I think it's a real mistake if he doesn't if he doesn't take serious steps going forward. Last question for Jake Tapper of uh, he's anchor of the lead with Jake Tapper and State of the Union on Sundays on CNN. Um, what about looking ahead for the Democrats? It was a poll we were talking about earlier saying Democrats, so the voters want somebody new. They want new faces. And both Bernie and Biden are going to be pretty close to 80 in four years. Um, Elizabeth Warren, of course, isn't, isn't going to be uh, quite up there. Is it your sense that the Democrats are going to have a house cleaning and, and take a totally new approach? Or is, is the, the fact that Nancy Pelosi was able to, to fend off the, the challenge uh, from the congressman from Ohio, does, does that mean that they're going to stick with the strategy they've been using the last few years? Uh, well, I don't know. And, you know, keeping her, ha- <coughs> keeping her house leadership uh, <coughs> pardon me, is different than running for president, which takes a tremendous amount of energy and effort. Um, and uh, I think, you know, proved challenging for, for Secretary Clinton at age 69. Um, and as you point out, Bernie will be 79, Biden will be 78, Elizabeth Warren, Warren will be 71. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see a tremendous amount of people on the Democratic bench right now in terms of people who uh, immediately come to mind as being obvious uh, presidential candidates. Uh, the names that I've heard and seen are people that don't have a huge national profile. Um, So, you know, I think this is going to be a real, this could be a real rough four to eight years for Democrats. Um, We'll see, you know, it's an opportunity for Democrats, for some Democrats to come forward and be a shining star. But I I just, as of right now, and it's it's early, uh, I don't see anyone right now that fills that role. All right, Jake Tapper, CNN, thank you so much for sharing part of your Wednesday with us. You have a wonderful New Year's. All right. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 821 The Time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Well, that was nice that uh, Jake was able to educate me. I thought... I thought that the filibuster rule was for everything was for, you know, it's it's funny. There there was a distinction between Supreme Court as Mm -hmm. opposed to lower court rules. But I somehow thought that uh, as to confirming the cabinet members, that that kind of appointment, that all that the president needed uh, was a majority. But uh, if Jake is right, uh, I, I guess the Democrats could 
hold things up because, you know, if they really want to take a stand, uh, they could say, look, this guy Tillerson, uh, you know, we've it's just too much of a bromance with Putin and we are going to stand firm. And, you know, they could try to protest against uh, Sessions, although, you know, I they don't like to eat their own. Jeff Sessions, a fellow yeah, senator. senator right. Uh, in spite of the allegedly racist comments, I mean, if he made the comment he made, it wasn't allegedly, it was racist. But, you know, the fact of the matter is... Well, the Democrats had a, a former leader of the KKK in, in yeah. the Senate, so, you well, know. Hey, uh, we are informed that uh, John Kerry, uh, Secretary of State, uh, who's about to uh, give a major address, uh, is available, and here he is. Peace. I'm also here to share my conviction that there is still a way forward if the responsible parties are willing to act. And I want to share practical suggestions for how to preserve and advance the prospects for the just and lasting peace that both sides deserve. So it is vital that we have a, an honest, clear-eyed conversation about the uncomfortable truths and difficult choices, because the alternative that is fast becoming the reality on the ground is in nobody's interest. Not the Israelis, not the Palestinians, not the region, and not the United States. Now I want to stress that there is an important point here. My job, above all, is to defend the United States of America, to stand up for and defend our values and our interests in the world. And if we were to stand idly by and know that in doing so, we are allowing a dangerous dynamic to take hold, which promises greater conflict and instability to a region in which we have vital interests, we would be derelict in our own responsibilities. Regrettably, some seem to believe that the U.S. friendship means the U.S. must accept any policy, regardless of our own interests, our own positions, our own words, our own principles, even after urging again and again that the policy must change. Friends need to tell each other the hard truths, and friendships require mutual respect. Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations, who does not support a two-state solution, said after the vote last week, quote, it was to be expected that Israel's greatest ally would act in accordance with the values that we share and veto this resolution. <clears throat> I am compelled to respond today that the United States did in fact vote in accordance with our values, just as previous U.S. administrations have done at the Security Council before us. They fail to recognize that this friend, the United States of America, that has done more to support Israel than any other country, this friend that has blocked countless efforts to delegitimize Israel, cannot be true to our own values or even the stated democratic values of Israel. And we cannot properly defend and protect Israel if we allow a viable two-state solution to be destroyed before our own eyes. And that's the bottom line. The vote in the United Nations was about preserving the two-state solution. That's what we were standing up for. Israel's future is a Jewish and democratic state, living side by side in peace and security with its neighbors. That's what we are trying to preserve 
for our sake and for theirs. In fact, this administration has been Israel's greatest friend and supporter with an absolutely unwavering commitment to advancing Israel's security and protecting its legitimacy. On this point, I want to be very clear. No American administration has done more for Israel's security than Barack Obama's. The Israeli Prime Minister himself has noted our, quote, unprecedented military intelligence cooperation. Our military exercises are more advanced than ever. Our assistance for Iron Dome has saved countless Israeli lives. We have consistently supported Israel's right to defend itself by itself, including during actions in Gaza that sparked great controversy. Time and again, we have demonstrated that we have Israel's back. We have strongly opposed boycotts, divestment campaigns, and sanctions targeting Israel in international fora. Whenever and wherever its legitimacy was attacked, and we have fought for its inclusion across the UN system. In the midst of our own financial crisis and budget deficits, we repeatedly increased funding to support Israel. In fact, more than one half of our entire global foreign military financing goes to Israel. And this fall, we concluded an historic $38 billion memorandum of understanding that exceeds any military assistance package the United States has provided to any country at any time. And that will invest in cutting-edge missile defense and sustain Israel's qualitative military edge for years to come. That's the measure of our support. This commitment to Israel's security is actually very personal for me. On my first trip to Israel as a young senator in 1986, <clears throat> I was captivated by a special country, one that I immediately admired and soon grew to love. Over the years, like so many others who are drawn to this extraordinary place, I have climbed Masada, swum in the Dead Sea, driven from one biblical city to another. I've also seen the dark side of Hezbollah's rocket storage facilities just across the border in Lebanon, walked through the exhibits of the hell of the Holocaust at Yad Vashem, stood on the Golan Heights, and piloted an Israeli jet over the tiny airspace of Israel, which would make anyone understand the importance of security to Israelis. Out of those experiences came a steadfast commitment to Israel's security that has never wavered for a single minute in my 28 years in the Senate or my four years as Secretary. I've also often visited West Bank communities where I met Palestinians struggling for basic freedom and dignity amidst the occupation, passed by military checkpoints that can make even the most routine daily trips to work or school an ordeal. You're listening to Secretary of State leaders. John Kerry's speech on Mideast policy here on KBC. And families who have struggled to secure permission just to travel for needed medical care. And I have witnessed firsthand the ravages of a conflict that has gone on for far too long. I've seen Israeli children in Sidorot whose playgrounds had been hit by Katusha rockets. I visited shelters next to schools in Kiryat Shimona. The kids had 15 seconds to get to after a warning siren went off. 
I've also seen the devastation of war in the Gaza Strip, where Palestinian girls in Ismat Abed Rabo played in the rubble of a bombed-out building. No children, Israeli or Palestinian, should have to live like that. So despite the obvious difficulties that I understood when I became Secretary of State, I knew that I had to do everything in my power to help end this conflict. And I was grateful to be working for President Obama, who was prepared to take risks for peace and was deeply committed to that effort. Like previous U.S. administrations, we have committed our influence and our resources to trying to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict because, yes, it would serve American interests to stabilize a volatile region and fulfill America's commitment to the survival, security, and well-being of an Israel at peace with its Arab neighbors. Despite our best efforts over the years, the two-state solution is now in serious jeopardy. The truth is that trends on the ground, violence, <coughs> terrorism, incitement, settlement expansion, and the seemingly endless occupation, they are combining to destroy hopes for peace on both sides and increasingly cementing an irreversible one-state reality that most people do not actually want. Today, there are a number, uh, there are uh, a, a, a similar number of Jews and Palestinians living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. They have a choice. They can choose to live together in one state or they can separate into two states. But here is a fundamental reality. If the choice is one state, Israel can either be Jewish or democratic. It cannot be both. And it won't ever really be at peace. Moreover, the Palestinians will never fully realize their vast potential in a homeland of their own with a one-state solution. Now, most on both sides understand this basic choice. And that is why it is important that polls of Israelis and Palestinians show that there is still strong support for the two-state solution, in theory. They just don't believe that it can happen. After decades of conflict, many no longer see the other side as people, only as threats and enemies. Both sides continue to push a narrative that plays to people's fears and reinforces the worst stereotypes, rather than working to change perceptions and build up belief in the possibility of peace. And the truth is, the extraordinary polarization in this conflict extends beyond Israelis and Palestinians. Allies of both sides are content to reinforce this with uh, an us or you're with us or against us mentality, where too often anyone who questions Palestinian actions is an apologist for the occupation, and anyone who disagrees with Israel policy is cast as anti-Israel or even anti-Semitic. That's one of the most striking realities about the current situation. This critical decision about the future, one state or two states, is effectively being made on the ground every single day despite the expressed 
opinion of the majority of the people. The status quo is leading towards one state and perpetual occupation. But most of the public either ignores it or has given up hope that anything can be done to change it. And with this passive resignation, the problem only gets worse, the risks get greater, and the choices are narrowed. This sense of hopelessness among Israelis is exacerbated by the continuing violence, terrorist attacks against civilians, and incitement, which are destroying belief in the possibility of peace. Let me say it again. There is absolutely no justification for terrorism, and there never will be. And You've the been most listening to Secretary of State John Kerry's address on the recent U.N. vote on Israeli-Palestine relations. Well, I think this uh, proved, uh, once again, President Obama has shown a huge commitment to a drone program by appointing John Kerry <laughs> Secretary of State. He defended the two-state solution as the only path to peace. Uh, we're going to chat further about this. Welcome your thoughts. 1-800-222-KABC here on Talk Radio 790-KABC. Let's check three ways with Bill Thomas. So, Rob Marinko, of course, you know, the two-state solution, as I recall my history, that's how Israel was born. In 1948, the United Nations uh, carved up a, a piece of land in the Middle East there. They created an Arab state. They created a, the state of Israel. Uh, and so ever since then, we've been all struggling with how to, how to deal with the desire by the Palestinians to have their home state. But Israel's position is you can't have a two-state solution if one side doesn't agree that the other side has a right to exist. And, of course, uh, the Arabs in the region and Iran and so on do not acknowledge Israel's right to exist. Well, they, yeah, so they, Israel's standing firm. Exactly. They, they are for a zero-state solution and not having Israel as part of that picture in the geography that, uh, that features a tiny little state and, and a, a massive Arab presence uh, in, in countries that would rather Israel not be there, but namely Iran. And the one thing that, of course, uh, John Kerry uh, didn't mention, he may be now, but quite frankly, uh, it's not worth listening to, <laughs> is the fact that with over $100 billion given to, um, to Iran over the last year, it has done nothing but help them. Uh, commit to a promise they've made over and over again to eliminate Israel. If you'd like to weigh in, 1-800-222-KABC. Let's go to the phones. Dave in San Clemente. You're on KABC. How are you doing, Dave? Hey, good morning, Royal. Good morning, Rob. Happy New Year to you. Same to Happy you. Happy New Year. So my comment is this. The Arab states, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, you name it, all they do is use the Palestinians as a wedge to keep this conflict boiling. And it's ironic to me that Europe is taking in so many refugees from Syria, providing them a, a new home, and no one talks about the Arab states' obligation to do that for the Palestinians yep. in order to settle this conflict once and for all. Uh, that, that's never discussed. It's never on the table. And, and I don't, for that matter, I don't hear any U.S. leader on the left or the right discuss that, and I, I don't understand why. Um, you know, this is, I think this is the flashpoint for a third world war. I really do. Uh, we, we can't keep going down this road. 
Well, you raised some really good points, Dave. And, and uh, Rob, I think you were saying earlier, I mean, let's face it, uh, Iran would like nothing better than to be able to develop that nuclear capability, and you know what they want to do with it. They, they sure. absolutely make no secret of that. No, it's it's been very public, and they want to eliminate uh, Israel from the face of the earth. I mean, that's pretty clear. And I think you're right, Dave. They, the, uh, the, those countries, the Arab countries, they do want to keep the conflict boiling, and this is a perfect opportunity. It's just a little ironic that, uh, uh, and, uh, as you say, in terms of the refugee situation uh, in Europe, uh, it just seems like, like they have an interest in, in, in not having a peaceful solution. Well, I mean, history is a guide. The, the, the day after Israel was founded, uh, the Arab states rolled tanks and uh, try to destroy a one-day-old state. And, you know, the, the, the basic question is, if, if Israel laid their arms down tomorrow and said, we will fight no more, what, what would happen? Now, if the Palestinians said, we will lay our arms down and fight no more, what would happen? In the first case, Israel would be destroyed. In the second case, there would be peace. Absolutely. You've got, you've got basically mental patients who don't want their enemies to exist, and there's just a- absolutely no excuse for it. Dave, appreciate your call. Let's go to Mike in El Segundo. You're on KBC. Welcome. Hi, thank you. The so-called two-state solution is not a solution at all, unless you want to call it a final solution against Israel and the Jews, just like the Nazi Holocaust. This would create a terrorist Arab Muslim state dedicated not to peace, dedicated not to get some additional land, but dedicated to the destruction of six million Jews in Israel. And given the Iranian nuke deal that Obama made, there is is very definitely the possibility, I would say even the probability, that within 10 years, not only Iran will have nukes, but they can give it to this new so-called Palestinian state or country that would be created, or the Palestinian state could get the nukes from North Korea. I believe North Korea and Iran collaborate together. It's quite possible that Iran has already tested one of their nuclear weapons or nuclear weapon designs in North Korea. So this is not only a huge threat to Israel, it's a huge threat to the United States and the world. And once you have Pakistan plus any other uh, Muslim state with nuclear weapons, there's plausible deniability that if nukes explode in Israel or New York and Los Angeles, they say, oh, it wasn't us, it must have been somebody else. Well, you make a lot of sense, Mike, but uh, I guess the good news is uh, three weeks from now, uh, there's going to be a whole new administration. Yeah, exactly. New administration uh, coming in. Mike, thank you for sharing your thoughts. If you'd like to get on the air with us, 1-800-222-KABC. 845 The Time, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. This is Talk Radio 790-KABC. Hey, how about dependable traffic with Bill Thomas? How are things looking? 906 The Time on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Wednesday to you all. Maybe the holidays upon us. We thank you for choosing 790 KABC for talk about the day's news with context and honesty from Southern California personalities you know and like. Count on Doug McIntyre, Peter Tilden, Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood, and Julian Barbary and John Phillips, plus the NBC4 news crew for enlightening, relevant news and compelling, entertaining talk. News Talk Evolved, 790 KABC. A little weather update. I actually have a warning from, uh, from back in D.C. There's a... Hot air warning, and it's uh, because that uh, Carrie's still talking. <laughs> it's uh, hot air coming from that particular 
He is Lecture. still get ready for long wins. Well, oh, you know, man, he's got to take over for Fidel Castro. He would go on for three or four <laughs> hours, uh, or even longer. So one of the big issues facing the Trump administration is going to be what to do with the abortion topic, Planned Parenthood, the right of religious organizations not to be involved in contraception, insurance coverage, and so on. With us to help sort this out is Diane Stevens of Planned Parenthood. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you're quite welcome, and uh, I guess that there is concern in a lot of quarters uh, about the new rules under uh, President-elect Trump. Uh, tell me, uh, from your uh, organization's standpoint, what's uh, what's on the radar screen? Yeah, well, first let me tell you a little bit about what Planned Parenthood does. You know, across the country, we serve 2.5 million women and men. And so it's true that there is a lot of concern right now um, from those millions of women and men who rely on us about what a Trump presidency means for their health care. Um, you know, bottom line, we may face some challenges ahead, but we have been here for 100 years, and we're not planning on going anywhere anytime soon. Um, so we want to make it very clear to the patients who rely on us here in Los Angeles and across the country that our doors will stay open. And uh, I, by the way, I butchered your name. My apologies. It's uh, Dina Stevens. Dina. Oh, it's Dina. Okay. Well, third time's the charm. <laughs> so, so, Dina, what about this issue of the Supreme Court? Uh, is there a lot of concern among uh, folks who share your philosophy that, okay, right off the bat, uh, President Trump's going to have an opportunity to replace uh, Antonin Scalia, and then who knows where it'll go from there? What's your take on the Supreme Court angle in terms of you know the big picture issues in terms of Roe versus Wade and restrictions on abortion rights? Right. So, and that's absolutely top of mind for a lot of people in this country who care about abortion access. And and let me say first of all that um, the majority of Americans, including many of Trump's own voters, support access to not only health care at Planned Parenthood health centers, but they also don't want to see women lose access to safe and legal abortion. So Donald Trump has pledged to appoint anti-abortion judges to the Supreme Court, and and this is really an effort to double down on his vision um, of a country where Roe would be over returned, and that would force millions of women to travel out of state, potentially out of the country, to seek the care that they need. Uh, here in California, I think it's important to note that we do have laws on the books that codify the protections of Roe for women in our state. We're really committed to making sure that that critical care remains available to women. But, you know, a person's right to make their own health care decisions about abortion or anything else really should not depend on who they are or where they live. Um, I think uh, we've all heard now Donald Trump has promised to be the president for all of us, um, whether or not we voted for him. And we want to remind him that that includes the estimated one in three women in this country who will have an abortion in her lifetime. Um, she deserves a president who will respect her health care decisions. Dina, I'm a little bit curious here. I, I believe just by your voice that you're you're probably younger than I am. I, I, I almost know <laughs> that for sure. So uh, let, me, let me just explain what I've been hearing uh, from your organization whenever we have a Republican president. It's not verbatim, but you, the argument and the concern and the fear is almost exactly the same. It's, you know, Roe v. Wade will be overturned. Uh, women will not be able to get abortions and so forth. And it never happens. Uh, why would the concern be any different now? 
So I, I think right now, you know, we, we have a confluence of things. Um, I think we can't deny that the people who are taking leadership roles in January uh, really do have a history of voting to defund Planned Parenthood, um, making public comments, vowing to defund Planned Parenthood. So I think um, we are facing significant challenges that perhaps are uh, certainly not new, but in this current climate, I think we are gearing up um, to have a real fight on our hands. Uh, I can't say why people are so determined to shut women off from health care at Planned Parenthood. You're right, this is nothing new. So in that respect, this is a battle that we have fought before, and, and we are committed to certainly fighting again, even in the face of, of this administration. We're talking with Dinah Stevens of Planned Parenthood, uh, 1-800-222-KABC, if you'd like to, to weigh in. That's not unheard of that uh, listeners to talk radio might express an opinion on the abortion issue. Really? Yeah. So, so Dinah, were you encouraged by the 60 Minutes interview that uh, Trump gave? It seemed like he was kind of lukewarm on the whole abortion issue. I think Leslie Stahl was kind of poking and prodding and... It, it to me, it was a reflection of the fact that this guy is not exactly Phyllis Schlafly. Schlafly, okay? He used to be pro-choice. He, a lot of people, cynical people, would say, well, you know, he formulated his conservative positions in 2016 because he wanted to get uh, elected. Do you really see him as an opponent of women's reproductive rights? Uh, you know, um, I think one thing that we, <clears throat> excuse me, do know about Donald Trump. And that we have uh, seen over the past many months is that he is unpredictable, right? And so it's hard to say exactly where he's going to come down on this issue. Ultimately, um, he has surrounded himself with people who have a proven track record of opposing Planned Parenthood. Um, but like you said, he himself has acknowledged that Planned Parenthood does um, some really incredible work. Uh, over 90% of the care that we provide to the women who come to our centers is preventive care, things like birth control control, cancer screenings, STD testing, and things that are really basic, basic health care. You know, over 99% of women will use birth control at some point in her life. So uh, I would like to be optimistic and give the president-elect the benefit of the doubt that he, um, he may not attack women's health. And I think we are committed to working with him to get him to understand the important role that Planned Parenthood plays in our communities. That said, um, we need to be prepared to really make sure that our doors stay open no matter what is thrown at us. What, what if, Diana, let's say that uh, federal funding stops for Planned Parenthood, but from what everything I'm hearing from you and other supporters of Planned Parenthood would be that, geez, if, if you really support it and think it's a great organization helping women, wouldn't private funding be overwhelming for the organization? So we, since the election, we have seen an outpouring of support from the communities. It, uh -huh. it has been incredible. Um, I think there was a report out today, over 300,000 uh, donations to Planned Parenthood nationwide, um, which is really unprecedented, and we are so grateful for the support. Here in L.A., I can say that in the week following the election, we received 7,000 gifts online. And that's just online, just in Los Angeles. Um, we also received, I believe, around 500 volunteer applications of yeah. people wanting to help, which is incredible. I, I can also say that it, it is um, expensive to operate a, a healthcare organization that serves 2.5 million people. So 
while we are so appreciative of the private donations that are coming in and so grateful to see the community galvanized around these issues and supporting women, uh, we do need to make sure that our leaders at the federal and at the state level are prepared to step up and help keep our doors open as well. I think one of the reasons that you saw such really deep, profound uh, angst and just real concern among Trump opponents after the election is this issue of abortion. And with Scalia is dead, and so there's there's a replacement coming up, I think a lot of people are worried about just Roe versus Wade getting tossed out. I'd be interested in your take on that, but before you give me your take, let me give you mine. Uh, And to me, it seems like it's a little panicky to worry about that. If you look at the lineup, if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, you got four solid liberals, Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, and Ginsburg. And you have two in the middle, Kennedy and Roberts. And I think when you look at those six, it's very unlikely you're going to cobble together five votes to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, on the right wing, you do have Alito and Thomas, but those are just two. And yes, Trump is going to replace Scalia. So let's say you've got a total pro-life vote. Now you got Alito, Thomas, and the new one. That's still only three. And even if you lost one of the liberals, and so you've got three of the four liberals, you still have Kennedy and Roberts. So I think probably for years and years, it's very unrealistic to worry about the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Do you see it any differently? No, you know, and um, so that was a lot of math to follow, and I hope that you're right. (laughs) Um, I think what we worry about is um, not just sort of the end game of potentially overturning Roe, which would be a massive shift for our country and something that's frankly opposed by most most Americans um, when asked. Uh, And I think it's one thing interesting to note is that people are getting away from this idea of pro-choice, pro-life, and moving towards just a common sense position of supporting access to safe and legal abortions. And when you ask most Americans that question, um, overwhelmingly, they say, yes, women should have access to safe and legal abortion. I think what we're concerned about uh, here on the ground in our health centers and in our call centers um, are the patients who are calling us every day, reading the headlines, whether or not what they're reading is true or just around the corner. Um, They're scared. And so they're calling us. We take close to 2,000 phone calls every single day in our call center here just in Los Angeles. And a lot of women right now are calling us panicked that abortion is going to be illegal. Um, That's one of the reasons that you may have read that um, so many women right now are clamoring to get IUDs. Um, That's a form of long act term birth control that would, you know, essentially outlast the Trump presidency if it's one term. Dinah, there's a term that you used, and it's used often, and a lot of Americans, when they hear the term, they understand something totally different. You use the term access repeatedly, access to women's health, access to abortions. Aren't you really saying uh, free when you say access? In other words, who's going to stop the women from going and, and if they need to, paying for an abortion? Right. Well, that's a great question. And I think it's a little bit of a buzzword in terms of in the healthcare world. So important to think about it and define it. Um, So access can mean all kinds of things. Women can face a lot of barriers when trying to get healthcare. The classic example is insurance. Just because you have an insurance card doesn't mean that you actually have a place to go, a doctor to see who would accept that insurance card and provide you the health care. Another thing could be a limited number of doctors. So some of these services, um, abortion, but also birth control, um, things like 
cancer screenings, pap tests, STI testing, those are time sensitive. And so if women are forced to wait months before they're able to get an appointment with the provider that they need, because uh, they have limited access now, then that can result in pretty devastating consequences for those women. We're talking to Diane uh, Stevens of Planned Parenthood, and you made an interesting point about the women rushing out to get IUDs. Uh, it's kind of analogous, to, in my mind, when, when there's a big uh, gun control or rule coming up, people say, oh my gosh, you know, uh, they're not going to let me have a certain kind of gun, and, and the gun sales go up. So it sounds like people uh, are, are not exactly listening to the Royal Oaks uh, opinion about uh, the configuration of the Supreme Court. But, you know, the, the game really hasn't been overturning Roe versus Wade. It just doesn't seem to be in the cards. Instead, the game has been restrictions on abortion. Like, okay, what about a waiting period? Oh, what about counseling before you have exactly. the operation? What about standards for hospitals and surgical suites? What about notifying the husband? That has been the battlefield for many years, and the Supreme Court's had to weigh in. Are you anticipating, is your group expecting, that we're going to see more efforts now with the Trump presidency in, in the state legislatures, maybe emboldened by the folks at the top, to try to impose restrictions as opposed to overturning Roe versus Wade? Absolutely. So overturning Roe versus Wade may be the goal, but as you said, it also may be a long time off and hopefully we can stave it off. I think what we really need to be wary of and focused on beating back all these attacks are the potential attacks coming from the state level. So things exactly like you mentioned, restrictions on abortion access um, and the providers that provide abortion through unmedically necessary requirements of facilities, for example, um, through these arduous waiting periods, which for many women who are traveling hundreds of miles now to get uh, access to their only abortion provider in the state, imposing a 48-hour waiting period could mean the difference of a woman actually being able to access care or not. Um, so I, I definitely think that that is an area of, of concern, and that will be something that we will remain vigilant and that we're really committed to fighting back some of these attacks. So Planned Parenthood took some hits within the last year or so. I remember those stories of the hidden camera stuff. It was pretty, some pretty heavy-duty stuff. People sitting around Denny's having a cup of coffee and the Planned Parenthood person saying, uh, oh, yeah, we can get some fetal parts and uh, we can sell some stem cell stuff. And, and I think the public relations hit, uh, and I don't recall exactly the extent to which your group was involved, but it, it was it was pretty negative. What was that like, and, and was there any long-term damage you think you suffered from that? Yeah, so I think you're uh, referring to last summer. It was a group of extremists, extreme anti-abortion activists, and handful of people who uh, created some, so they illegally taped conversations, but more so they edited those videos, and so they were incredibly misleading for the public, and they were intended to make the public believe that Planned Parenthood was engaging in illegal activity. Um, those tapes have now been widely debunked. Several states actually opened their own investigations uh, into Planned Parenthood, and state after state after state has cleared Planned Parenthood of any wrongdoing. And so, really, uh, public opinion remains very, very strong in favor of Planned Parenthood. Um, I think we, we had quite a platform to share with people wh who we really are and what we really do, and talk about some of the services and the preventive care that doesn't always make the headlines, but is so much of what we provide to women. So, um, unfortunately, those videos were very clearly politically motivated. Yeah, but you're not, uh, you're not blaming the, the uh, Russians though, are you? Dino? <laughs> There's no hacking involved. I might be the one person not blaming the Russians. All right.
What about the religious groups objecting to uh, covering birth control, contraception, and so on? The little sisters of the poor and so on, they're going up to the U.S. Supreme Court and they're battling away, and the Obama administration is saying, oh, well, you know, just sign off on it. You won't have to pay for it, and, but they don't even like the idea of it. Do you think that's going to be a battleground in, in the next year? Because it seems like there's some regulations that the Trump administration could implement that would affect uh, th- those kinds of rights. Right. So that has certainly been a battleground, right, uh, since the passage of the ACA. So I think it's important to right now remember that the ACA remains in effect until the laws change. Um, And that is one place that our new administration is also kind of looking to dismantle. So uh, it's both the defunding of Planned Parenthood as well as the repeal of some of the ACA provisions. And the birth control provision that you mentioned is actually one of the most popular provisions in the entire Affordable Care Act. Uh, If it were repealed, I I believe more than 55 million women would lose access to the no copay preventive services, including birth control. Um, So that remains to be seen. Uh, Our new um, Secretary of Health and Human Services is opposed to the no copay birth control provision, as well as really the entire ACA. So we plan to work with him to educate him uh, and remind him how important this is for women. Um, And then at the same time, just stay focused on what we do in terms of serving serving women in our health centers. Um, And I think the spike in IUD uh, requests has been directly related to the threat of that provision being repealed. All right. Diana Stevens, whose name we finally got right, of Planned Parenthood, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. You have a great New Year's. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, Times 924 on Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, Infodug McIntyre. When we come back, a woman rotting in jail because she was too loud during sex. But first, The Roads with Bill Thomas.